0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we look ahead to Father's Day by exploring the relationship between fathers and sons, sometimes fraught, and how to improve yours. And while you may have Father's Day plans this weekend, how about setting aside some time to do absolutely nothing at all. Turns out it's harder than it sounds. Most of us struggle to disconnect completely. We'll get some advice from the person behind the Do Nothing Project. We mark a population milestone in Canada as we hit the 40 million mark on Friday afternoon. Canada's growth rate of 2.7% is the highest it's been since the 1950s. And while that growth brings lots of benefits, it also brings challenges, including around affordable house but first we're learning more today about a tragic minibus crash near the town of carberry manitoba on thursday that claimed the lives of 15 people mainly from the area of dauphin manitoba taking part in a day trip to a casino cjob's richard cloutier has been in dauphin all day and shares what he's seen and heard in the community coping with grief and shock we're going to start tonight in manitoba where along with so much grief there are also questions and some answers uh, coming forth tonight a few at least we're learning more today about that horrific crash yesterday near the town of carberry between winnipeg and brandon 15 people were killed 13 women and two men and 10 injured when a transport truck collided with a minibus carrying seniors from the town of dauphin on their way to a nearby casino on a day trip organized by the seniors residents they were just minutes from their destination when the bus traveling southbound on Highway Five that would have brought them from Dauphin began crossing the Trans Canada Highway, these two highways meet, and there's only a stop sign uh, warning drivers coming along Highway Five that they have to stop. They're about to cross this busy road. It was making it made its way across the westbound lanes onto a median. It's when the bus started crossing the eastbound lanes that the crash took place. Uh, the bus was thrown dozens of meters and off the road. Today, Manitoba RCMP gave an update saying that dash cam footage seized from the transport truck does show that the bus pulled into the lane where the truck had the right-of-way. Now, they're not uh, laying any blame on anyone yet. They're still investigating, but this is what the dash cam video shows, that the bus pulled into the lane where the truck coming uh, eastbound along the Trans-Canada had the right-of-way. Superintendent Rob Lassen, the officer in charge of major crime, says police again are not assigning blame at this time, and the investigation continues. We have obtained video footage of the collision that was seized from the semi-truck trailer. This video indicates that the bus entered the roadway where the semi-trailer truck had the right-of-way. Extensive analysis is being done on the video before any further determinations are, are made. Lassen says police have not spoken to the driver of the bus who is still being treated in hospital. They have spoken to the driver of the truck. Six people remain in hospital in critical condition tonight. There were 25 people on that bus ranging in age from 58 to 88, 19 women and six men. Again, most are all from the community of Dauphin. Uh, Brad Mikelski represents the riding of Dauphin in the provincial
1: legislature. We're a pretty tight-knit community of communities. And, uh, yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard to find anybody that's not affected or knows somebody, uh, in this area
2: that hasn't been directly affected by this. Brad Mikoleski, I should
0: say. Victims of the crash have yet to be formally identified, leaving loved ones, of course, struggling and waiting while investigators try to put together uh, the pieces here. RCMP say they are working with the Medical Examiner's Office to confirm identities and to then get into contact with families. Uh, Sandra Kalita is a member of the Senior Centre from where the bus tour started, and she says the community really needs this time to heal.
3: And it's going to take years, not just days and weeks it's going to take years and i can't imagine what's going to happen when the funerals start
0: well richard cloutier is co-host of the news on chorus station 680 cjob he has spent the day in dauphin and he joins us now richard thanks so much for doing this
3: you're you're quite welcome and i spent part of my day with sandra and others at the, uh, the senior center and you certainly got a sense there. And two others, um, women by the name of Margaret and Marie, and uh, both would normally go on these casino uh, trips. Right. And Margaret um, was thinking about going, and uh, she decided not to. wasn't feeling so well, and last night was getting these frantic phone calls from relatives wondering if it was her on the bus and. And you can just imagine, and I think as parents, you all have that really you go to that dark spot when you hear an ambulance and you hear something like this and you fear for a loved ones and you can't get a hold of them right away and you finally get a hold of them. And she described that that feeling at the other end of the phone call of her son and others that were checking on her. And she said, Unfortunately, I won't you know, while I I'm alive here to tell you the story. There are so many relatives of the people I know on that bus that you know the phone call's not answered and they know that they're dealing with a loved one who has been lost. So those types of stories and they decided, Ben, to do the bingo today because you know, they talked really? about well, should we be doing bingo or not? And the stance was, you know, keeping busy and they played bingo from one to three in the afternoon. And the it was a way Yeah. The same group and you know, there were there were a lot of empty chairs in there that normally are filled. And yeah, I mean and yeah. Ben it was a way for them to cope. And one can completely and totally understand that. Um, and for a couple of hours there it took their minds off their friends.
0: I could. I mean, listening to people talk about it, and I think anybody who's covered these sorts of tragedies—and not one exactly like this, but sort of tragedies of these scale—you know that in the early days, it's just shock, right? It's shock. Everyone is just sort of bewildered, and you do have to maintain some sort of routine. You can't just stop everything, uh, because you know you'll you'll you'll. It's just not healthy. Uh, so I can understand why they continue tried to continue on with some sense of normalcy today, but what, a for the, for the town we were speaking to the mayor on the show last night and, you know, it it sounds cliched when you say everyone knows each other, but in a town of that size with a tragedy of this size, everybody's
3: going to know somebody. Yeah. And you certainly get that sense from the Tim Hortons to the McDonald's, to the senior center, to the Walmart at the local mall, where the um, MLA that you quoted, um, his office is there. Um, But especially the the generations, like um, people our age, know the moms and dads, the uncles, the aunts, and how that's affecting them. And, you know, it was interesting in talking with some of the seniors today, there was a certain stoicism in the sense that, you know, um, we've lost so many within our group. Um, You know, this is horrific. And one of the stories, and I think what will emerge in the days ahead. Is the story of uh, a husband and wife were on that, um, on the bus. Right. And unfortunately, one has passed away, the other's alive. And, you know, it's those types of stories that you start to listen to you know, what they're talking about and the lives they lived and the memories that they shared, the little casino trips. But then, you know, all of what they have done, because Dauphin is one of those regional service centers. Where people who have lived in the farming community and many of the people while from Dauphin have roots in other parts of the Western Manitoba. And what mm-hmm. has happened as you grow older, it's all about healthcare. It's all about being closer to that healthcare. And it's all about being, um, you know, in a, in a more safe environment. And Dauphin is that type of service center. And I think one of the most jarring things I saw outside the facility um, just right adjacent to the rec center. So you've got the municipal offices, you've got the recreation center, and you've got this, the senior center was in the parking lot about every hour. There was two people arriving and a vehicle, one would get out and one would get into one of those vehicles. And then you quickly learned that those were the vehicles of the people that drove to the senior center to get onto that bus to go to right. the casino. And they were left there overnight. And um, in some cases, I approached. And you, could, you can right away tell in this business whether someone wants to talk or not. Yeah. And there was a young woman who just looked at me and just stared at me. And just, you, you know, your, your eyes meet. And she started to well up. And I just, I just knew that she just needed to get behind the wheel and get out and not talk to me. And it's yeah. those types of relationships that you, you deal with in, in, in these types of stories. And um, you know, I was I was at the sentencing hearing um, in Melfort in the wake of of Humboldt. Of Humboldt, right? And it's different. It's different it in the sense be. that yeah. w- the, the the grief is still there with everybody. But there was a sense talking with those seniors that they want to honor their friends and a life for the most part well lived. Nobody deserves to die in this and making national and international headlines. But the sense that I got in talking with the parents of Humboldt was these were lives all ahead of them and lives lost so tragically. And ultimately there was there was blame, right? There was a court case here. They all speak glowingly of that driver who is in hospital that by everything RCMP released today, that somebody made a tragic mistake and they yeah. don't want people to blame that driver they just don't
0: richard these you know these ish, these incidents can can tear a community apart you know and you were saying today that that the initially at least everyone is really wants that not to happen here
3: yeah and and i think you know in looking at vans like the one that is charred that you, you know you can see the the outline of a a vehicle there but barely that you wonder about blind spots right that you know this was perfectly you know beautiful day and that um highway the trans canada highway in manitoba like we see across this country you know stop signs uncontrolled intersections that way you get across and you're trying to get across and the type of van you're looking at there's a door in it um and you know, I, I always think of when we rode the school bus as kids, when the bus got to the uh, tracks, they would open the door just to look right for blind spots because right. it right, it's tough
0: to see out, out the right, out the right side there with the door. And that's the side they would have been looking out going across those eastbound and, lanes.
3: And, and that's what's going through my mind. In, in talking with some of the folks today about, you know, that scenario, um, you know, are you just quickly because there's traffic is so heavy, you're trying to get across. And you're not quite looking you think you're looking and you're not looking and it's those split second decisions that can get us into trouble and in this case a catastrophe and right. so you're thinking about that and again you know while the gravity of the situation compares to humble all indications are it was just a mistake a very tragic mistake and you know th- these are folks that you know the the driver and and you know names will come out and and situations will come out in in the days ahead here but it was all about jokes was all about you know making sure uh and and waiting if somebody didn't get there quite on time and you know people were were saying that we don't want to lay blame here that that, uh you know this community is being torn apart enough because the frustration of not knowing there's a little bit of anger today, right? You, you get that yep. as you go through this. And so people are trying not to be angry, but it's happening in, in, in certain circles. And you certainly get that sense. And as we go, and as the premier comes to Dauphin here tomorrow, Heather Stephenson, as this community grieves in a more public way, because there is a sense at some point there needs to be something in the community to reflect this. And then at some point funerals, um, and, and that's the other thing that people are, you know, why can't they identify the remains quick enough? And the chief medical examiner was talking about the meticulous way that you have to deal with this. And they are trying, uh, no one wants to make the mistake that they made in Humboldt as far right. as that, that's the, 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 problem, the victims right? are yeah. concerned. Absolutely. Yeah. That, and RCMP have issue. said yeah. that from, uh, that they do not want to make that. And the other thing is that it tends to be not all the time, but in Manitoba, RCMP tend not to name and release names of victims. And mm-hmm. so the, there's going to be this sense that we're going to be identifying folks through families who come forward and say, ours is one of the 15. And the other thing what we have to be reminded of tonight, those in critical, they're elderly, they're frail, their injuries are very grave. And so, you know, we're all on pins and needles wondering if those numbers go up. We hope they don't. But, you know, some of the people that I've talked to have said, listen, um, very difficult. This was all complicated by a fire at Health Sciences Centre, the trauma hospital in Winnipeg. There was a fire that put the power out. They were working on backup generators and some of the surgeries had to be cancelled, some uh, and, and delayed as a result of this overnight and questions are being asked, not absolutely answered as to whether or not any of those six who needed surgery were delayed as far as surgery is concerned. Um, A nurse that I spoke to late this afternoon told me, wait a minute here, uh, this is one of those situations where people are frail and they might not be able to go through surgery yet, they have to improve. So underneath that, in talking to some folks, there's the anger, there's the anguish, there's the frustration. But right now, um, in the people that I've talked to today, there's just a whole lot of grief.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, Richard, thank you so much. Take care of yourself as well. These are very difficult stories. These are very difficult environments to be in. There's a lot of grief and there's a lot of pain. And, um, you know, great work. And thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Thank
3: you for allowing me to share. Be well, my friend.
4: Thank
5: you.
0: Yeah, that was the Canada song from Expo 67. I don't know if you remember that one. It was before my time, but my mom worked at Expo 67. So I'm familiar with the song. I especially always liked the part where they sang, Now We Are 20 Million, because indeed, back in 1967 there were 20 million of us here in canada fast forward uh to now to 1923 1923 2023 and uh we're double that as of this afternoon according to stats can we hit the 40 million mark uh right about uh, 3 p.m eastern today um we're gonna do a little trivia for you, for you tonight just to try this out i'll throw a few of these in during the show uh, but now that we have 40 million people take a guess where canada ranks overall in the world in terms of population size of population where are we i'll give you a little bit of a hint we're not very high we're, we're, we're in the top 40 but we're not in the top 20. how's that um let me know and i'll share those answers if we go on we'll have some some more trivia as we go through the evening but yeah indeed today around uh, 3 p.m it the clock there's actually a clock it's up around 40 million, 1, now um but it it hit 40 million 40 million people here uh our population growth is at 2.7%, which is the highest since 1957, when we were in the middle of a post-war baby boom. Of course, uh, last year, the population grew by a record 1.05 million. 96% of that is uh, due to international migration, unlike the baby boom, for instance. And, of course, the number of Indigenous people in the country is growing as well, increasing 9.4% from 2016 to 2021. Uh, This, of course, is a milestone for the country, but it also presents some challenges, and we've been talking about those. Clearly, we need the immigration for the labour market. Part of the problem we're having, and we all know this very well, is that... um, there's not enough affordable housing for everyone, right? Uh, But let's look at at the milestone and some of the challenges and some of the benefits as well. Kate Choi is an associate professor in sociology and director of the Center for Research on Social Inequality at Western University in London. And she joins us again. Thanks so much. Welcome back, Kate.
5: Thank you. Hello, Ben. How are you?
0: I will. I mean, this is kind of an exciting day for Canada because I think a lot of us, when I was growing up, we were kind of in the mid-20s, and it felt like, you know, if someone asks me how many people live here, I'll always say like 35 million. But here we are at 40 million, and and it's
5: growing fast. Yes, indeed. It's an important milestone as of 2.55 p.m. Today, uh, we've hit the 40 million mark.
0: Tell me what's driving it. I mean, we understand that it's immigration clearly because the birth rate of this country is is very low. But what kind of immigration is coming here?
5: You're absolutely right that international migration is driving it. And in fact, if we look at the most recent Statistics Canada report, it was reported that there were approximately 1.1 million individuals that were coming. If we look at the composition of international migrants, it's roughly 42% of individuals are permanent migrants, and 58% are non-permanent migrants. And by that, I mean people with a work permit, international students, and something that is different than in previous migration flows is the fact that in recent years, we've seen a rise of non-permanent migrants from the Ukraine. Uh, And last year, there were approximately 150,000 individuals coming from the Ukraine.
0: It's amazing how world events obviously play into these numbers, right? So, I mean, and we've had huge by movements of people over the last 15 years from all over the world, but the Ukrainian situation is certainly uh, certainly unique to the last last year and this year and so on. I, I gather that just because people are coming doesn't mean they stay, right? There's always a challenge there to try to retain people who've come to this country and make sure that they're accommodated, that they can succeed and so on. That has been a challenge for Canada.
5: Yes, the magnitude of the challenge has also been rather disproportionate across the different regions in Canada. So what we are seeing is places that have the largest labor shortages, and as a result, they probably have the highest demands in uh, immigrant labor are having the largest challenges in terms of their retention.
0: Right, because there are, uh, I mean, it, traditionally in this country, it was always believed, and I don't know if this is actually, I mean, it seems true, that uh, the vast majority of people who come to Canada go to the same places because there's, you know, there's set communities there. They may know people, they may have families. So you're talking about sort of the Toronto, the greater Southern Ontario, the lower mainland of BC, maybe Montreal. I gather now it's moving around a bit more. We're seeing other places grow as well.
5: Yes, we are seeing more immigrant admissions in other places like Atlantic Canada and so forth, in large part because there are immigration programs that are seeking to recruit individuals into these particular regions that have labor shortages. The fact that a lot of the cities that you mentioned, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, all these places have higher costs of living, including Greater housing affordability issues means that a lot of the immigrants are, in fact, going to these particular regions. Having said that, there are indeed discrepancies in terms of whether or not they end up staying in that particular region for five or 10 years.
0: Right, because I suppose the areas that, I mean, clearly this is a big benefit for Canada's labor market, right? I mean, we need people. Uh, But the challenge is trying to make sure, as I was mentioning earlier, that, that everyone who arrives is able to settle, able to afford to live, wants to stay here, enjoys the experience. And as you mentioned, sometimes people go to certain areas, then will move on to others. I suppose individual areas need to work on being able to retain people as much as the country does as a whole.
5: You're absolutely right. I think uh, many of these particular regions like New Brunswick or Nova Scotia had difficulty retaining uh, migrants for prolonged periods of time, need to increase immigrant settlement services and expand educational opportunities, opportunities for language acquisition and build the necessary social infrastructure so that newcomers to Canada can stay and thrive in these areas.
0: Do you have an idea of whether, because we know there are economic migrants, obviously, who come here to set up businesses, who are probably relatively wealthy at home and come here to set up something similar. Uh, we have, you know, uh, skilled labor that comes. We have people that are university students that come with different sets of skills. How is it going for each of those sets of people? I mean, you know, it's always been difficult to be a refugee, obviously, because especially in a country where the housing is so expensive. How is it for each one of those groups? Are they having similar experiences or is it depending on how many skills they come with and how much money they come with.
5: It is in fact the case that someone comes with a lot of human capital, comes with a lot of uh, networks already, comes with the skill sets. They have an easier time assimilating and uh, socioeconomically integrating into the Canadian uh, setting, whereas someone like a refugee that potentially uh, don't come with a lot of financial resources and and so forth and are migrating because there are strong push factors in their country of origin. These individuals tend to have the most difficulty Having said that, Canada often recruits a lot of economic migrants, about two-thirds of its migrant population are economic migrants, but these individuals also face challenges. So in order for Canada to maximize the benefits of international migration and the human capital that international migrants bring and ensures that newcomers Drive in Canada and ensures that they are retained for long periods of time, the Canadian government has to do a better job and invest more on ensuring that they can get their credentials approved within the Canadian context and use their skill sets, all the skill sets for which they have training.
0: In your experience, uh, I mean, I think people who grew up in Canada know the country well. People who've traveled a lot understand what the allure of Canada is. Uh, but in your experience, what is the what is the lure now for people who grow up in different parts of the world? Because many different countries are are vibrant. The economies are are good. Uh, I mean, what is the lure, do you think, of Canada to people in other parts of the world right now? Specifically, those who are coming here to apply skills that they could easily use at home.
5: One of the uh, lures of Canada that often gets mentioned uh, by uh, immigrants into Canada is the fact that Canada has had a stable political system. It's also the fact that there's a lot of international migrants is indeed a sign that people expect the Canadian economy to grow. And last uh, but certainly not least... The idea that Canada is a multicultural country and there are liberties that people can enjoy. Those are the three things that make Canada such an appealing destination country for a lot of international migrants.
0: Well, Kate, as always, thank you so much.
5: Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Well, thanks for being here. We're talking about Canada hitting 40 million people today. My question, my trivia question, 18773999898 is the text line. When did Toronto become Canada's most populated city? Let me know if you know. Um, one of the big issues around the growing the fast-growing pace of the population in Canada, um, the fastest since the mid- '50s, is housing. It's been. A, it's. It, this is not an issue that it's directly tied to immigration. The housing shortage issue has been here with us for a long time now. But having more people come exacerbates it in some ways, right? Um, when we need to find a solution because we need people to have a place to live. You can't bring people, you know, people can't come to this country and then can't, they can't afford housing at the same time as nobody else can afford housing. You know, the average price of a home in Canada in April was $716,000. That's a lot. You, have, you need to have a pretty good job to afford even the down payment on something like that. Uh, well, Matt Simi- Tiki is a professor of geography and planning, uh, sorry, he's professor of geography and planning and director of the Infra- Infrastructure Institute at the University of Toronto, and he joins us now. Thanks, Matty.
1: Hi, Ben. It's nice to be with you.
0: We were talking about this. I mean, I think for anyone who's, you know, spent many, many decades in this country, as you know, you would might naturally if you were born here, uh, 40 million seems like a big deal. It seems like a big number.
1: This is an important milestone. It's, it's a big number and it shows the type of growth we've experienced. When I was born, we were 24 million. So we're up by 65 percent since then. And it's really something just as a personal experience. And I think as a country to think of ourselves as a nation of 40 million now really gives a different weight to the country and really a different feel as well. You know, I, w-
0: having lived abroad and traveled quite a bit, you, you speak to people abroad, and Canada's reputation internationally is great as a place to live, as a place to have a family, as a place to work. But with, with the growth comes challenges, and we're seeing that too, especially on the housing side these days.
1: Yeah, housing is really the big one and growth comes with real opportunities in terms of uh, our economy, uh, filling some of the jobs that are vacant and also on the social uh, dynamics and and bringing real vitality to our communities and family connections. But uh, when it comes to the challenges, housing is really the big, obvious one. I mean, we're in a housing crunch and this really is a a need. It just highlights the necessity for us to be building many more units at all different types of uh, price ranges to make sure that there's affordable places to live and, and great communities, so that we can continue to be uh, a wonderful place to live.
0: It becomes a bit of a thorny argument, I, I know. And, and one of the things I've always found interesting is that it's not a it's not a dichotomy. It's not an either or. It's it's okay to say it's great to have lots of immigration into the country, and also say there's a housing crisis that's existed long before any of them arrived here. But they're walking into it, and the rest of us are living in it, and it seems unfair to everybody in this country right now if you can't put a roof over your head for unaffordable price.
1: I think you said that beautifully. And that really is both our challenge and uh, our opportunity are two sides of the same coin. I mean, we really now need uh, to move from uh, housing targets to housing plans, I think, as the Globe and Mail's editorial on this put it. We need to be able to now put real plans in place how are we going to build all of the units and how are we going to make sure that a healthy portion of those are deeply affordable and moderately affordable so that uh, we can be providing a roof over everyone's head and, and and a great community. And I think that's the key. It's not just the housing. It's all of the ancillary services and infrastructure that's necessary. It, it's about building great, complete communities. And in some ways, growth helps spur that. It, it creates the employment uh, and the labor force as, as well as the cohesion and the connections. But we need to be doing this through plans. We can't just be uh, uh, hoping and winging it.
0: It feels like we have been winging it, to be frank. I mean, everywhere you look, I know there's, there's buildings being built and there's things being, you know, there's obviously a supply and demand issue. So when there's demand, there will be more supply. But it feels like we haven't really prepared for this. And where do you, I mean, if you had to measure where we're at, how far behind do you think we actually are right now?
1: Well, when it comes to infrastructure, we missed a generation of infrastructure investment pretty much uh, in cities across the country. Uh, We didn't invest in our public transit systems for a number of decades. Uh, We haven't kept pace in terms of building hospitals, schools. We haven't got the right mix between location and and school capacity. We're struggling and we struggle in Canada uh, because of our constitution was not built for a country of this size and of this level of urbanization to really come up with cohesion between the three orders of government with their different responsibilities has just been a challenge in this country and so to create coherent plans has just been been hard and now Uh, We're under uh, special pressure. I mean, we now have to get this right or uh, it's going to become increasingly uh, challenging because the challenges were here before this wave of immigration. They will accelerate if we're not able to make sure that the types of housing and the types of infrastructure and social services are in place to make uh, housing neighborhoods into into real communities.
0: And one of the things that's been interesting of late too, is if you look across the country, there were the obvious areas that were really expensive, uh, you know, the, the Toronto's and the Vancouver's and so on, where a lot of people arriving in this country tend to go to because there's support structure there. There's often family in those big cities. But now we're seeing those those pressures sort of start to move to other places as well. So one wonders if you're arriving in Canada and looking, I mean, maybe if, you, you know, if you're an economic immigrant or you come here with, with a PhD and you're you know sure to get a good job, maybe you don't worry about it. But for a lot of other people arriving in this country, i mean even the rental market now has become unaffordable in many places so one wonders where where does everyone go
1: you know, that's been a part of an intentional strategy, too, to try to spread out some of the immigration from our big cities into some of our uh, smaller uh, communities and into parts of the country that maybe hadn't been growing. And again, there's rationale for that. It's it's very positive to experience growth. It fills jobs in places where some of those jobs, whether it's in healthcare or uh, in construction and engineering or in the trades or in other sectors where we've struggled to find workers, uh, where we really need them to keep our communities growing and thriving. But we are experiencing different different. different types of uh, some of the big city challenges around growth are now coming to our mid-size and and smaller uh, communities. And again, this really highlights the need for planning, uh, for coordination between the orders of government with the private sector and nonprofits to make sure that we can uh, can keep up with the level of investment that's necessary. And as you have more people and more newcomers, you're also generating uh, more income and economic uh, activity. So that's very positive. And the labor force is key. I mean, we've heard stories in our healthcare systems and in the skilled trades, for example, about all the gaps uh, that, that are there. So that's very positive. But we then need to make sure that uh, the community services and the housing and all the transportation and other infrastructure is in place uh, so that uh, the communities uh, that are there today and those who are coming can thrive.
0: In fairness, though, other other countries are are experiencing similar issues. You know, the, the UK uh, countries in Europe. I mean, if, if someone is looking at it at where to go around the world, if they're sitting at home somewhere and thinking, where sh- where would I love to settle down and raise a family? Canada is still attractive. We just need to make sure it doesn't get unattractive.
1: I think that's the remarkable part of the story is that. In the past year, what is it, 1.1 million people yeah. uh, between permanent and temporary immigrants have chosen Canada. That is a remarkable number of people who are putting uh, their investment, their own time, their own future, their own dreams in Canada and what we've built here. And I think it's incumbent on us then to make sure that we follow through and that we uh, we remain a great place to live. There have been stories of uh, in recent days about newcomers who have come here and have felt like we haven't lived up to expectations, maybe because their credentials aren't valid valued here. Or yep. because uh, our economy often, uh, even though we say we're open, we often also say that we want Canadian work experience. And that's been a barrier for people. Uh, so we really, and then the housing and the unaffordability has also been a challenge. So we really need to make sure that we're uh, keeping pace and, and investing and putting in, in place the program so that people people's credentials are recognized and they can come and work here uh, and, and succeed and, and see their dreams fulfilled.
0: Well, Maddie, thank you so much for this.
1: Thanks, Ben. It was nice being
0: with you. We've been talking a lot so far this spring about how dry conditions uh, are fueling some of those wildfires we've been seeing right across the country, including in Alberta. But the fires are overshadowing another impact of all this dry weather. And that's Alberta farmers and ranchers are having a tough start uh, to the spring this year. Um, Soil moisture reserves are really low in huge parts of the province. And it comes after drought conditions two years ago uh, led to a number of municipalities declaring agricultural disasters. So this has been a recurring problem. Uh, We heard today that ranchers worry that repeated drought years in the province will have a long-term impact on the of the Canadian cattle industry. Uh, this is what cattle farmer Rob Somerville had to say.
4: Um, and there is also a, a concern or a belief or a train of thought that if the cows get sold, uh, that they won't, uh, that the, the people won't, will not go back into the industry, say, in the two three years, uh, they'll, they'll stay
3: out.
0: Meantime, crops in southern Alberta that should be green are turning brown with little or no measurable precipitation since mid-April. Some a little bit this week, though, um, in areas mainly south of Calgary. Uh, some farmers are already talking about crop losses. Here's Delilah Miller. She's the Reeve of Foothills County.
1: The dugouts are drying up because of uh, the lack of rain that we've had. Uh, we really haven't had any of uh, the usual spring rains or the runoff. <laughs>
0: Now, there was a little bit of rain this week, as far as I can tell, but it may be a little bit too little and a little bit too late. Stephen Vandervoak is a fourth-generation farmer in southern Alberta and vice president of the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association. Stephen, thanks for your time tonight.
4: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: So, I mean, I I know just from having, you know, spent time in, 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 you know, Quebec's agricultural communities that spring is usually a time of a lot of, can be a time of a lot of optimism and rebirth and so on, but it's been a tough spring this year.
4: Yeah, that's for sure. It's been... uh... Just yeah, they, it started off not too bad with more average moisture. Got a couple snowfalls, and we started seeding in mid-April, and and uh, never stopped, which is unusual in itself, just because we had no you know rain delays if you want to call it that, or even a lot of times we'll get a nice blanket of snow uh, right. during seeding, and none of that happened. So it was just uh, yeah, it, it's it's been really it's been really tough. It's been, there's been absolutely no precipitation here whatsoever until this last week, and and even then it was little too little. For sure, and for right. sure, too late.
0: Right, I, I, and, it, and the drought conditions came early. I mean, it, they came early this year too. I mean, we've, we've been talking about the wildfires so much that I think we've been talking about just what a dry fall and dry yeah. spring it's been. But this is compounded by that,
4: right? Yeah, no, for sure. It's it's uh, like I've said before. It was unprecedented for us on our farm. Our farm's 100 years old next year, and and we've never had a period in uh, from mid April till mid June, if you want to call it that. Not quite. Uh, we had no measurable rain, absolutely zero, and crops just can't handle that. And and so they're just, the cereal crops are just all heading out at, you know, 8, 10 inches tall. Um, and in the rain we did get this past week wasn't nearly enough. And, and even if it was, it's it's way too late. What is the impact for those who may not
0: understand your business? You know, such as myself, who you know doesn't come that close to what you do very often. But what hap- what what is the impact at this time of year? It feels like, from what I, it couldn't
4: come at a worse time. Yeah, it's kind of it's a lot of impacts. We get one paycheck year, right, and that's harvest. And so if we don't get harvest right. uh, now, now we're going to crop insurance, which isn't great, and uh, and it's expensive. We pay for that, but um, it's that's not great. It, it's it's a time for now the grasshoppers are come pouring out of the, the grass fields and all the road ditches and are eating your crop. And now you got to go and spray that. And, and it, it's one of those things where, like I said, we're hundred years old next year. I'm fourth generation. My son is and my daughters, my farm it has to be fifth generation. And so we have to make sure that we, we spray the crop still because you can't put weeds back in then You put a weed seed bank back in the ground that lasts a decade. So you can't do those things. And so you still have to spend money on the crop, even though you know it's, it's a doomed crop and, and it's a money you're going to lose money, but you have no choice because you know we're we're here for the long haul, not just for this year. Right. I,
0: I was reading about the pest issues. I hear they're they're particularly bad this year. Apparently.
4: Yeah. No. It's been dry here six out of the last seven years, and so uh, grasshoppers are an example of something that doesn't just happen overnight. It takes multiple years to build up those eggs, and 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 now, yeah, we're kind of at that stage where they're they're coming to roost, and and it's been. Uh, and we haven't seen it. They're they're still kind of growing now. They're still small. They're still, uh, and that's something that's going to be affect us here in about two weeks, two three weeks, and we're going to have to spend more money to to keep them under control. You know, as
0: as part of as vice president of the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association, you must be hearing. I mean, you're you're obviously not alone. You're hearing these stories being told, yep. repeated from others. Is it right across the board? How far how far a does this go?
4: Well, it it. I mean, as a last week it was a lot bigger because there has been some significant rains, especially in that, uh, Calgary North. Um, so if Saskatchewan's not doing too bad. Manitoba, I don't think is doing too bad. So, I mean, the, the real crisis, if you want to call it that is, is sort of that drum heller, you know, east of Calgary and then down through to Fort McLeod over to Lethbridge and, you know, maybe a little ways over to Madison half. So that's the area where it's a little too little too late. Um, and then on top of that, I'm not sure if you had heard, but on my farm, I'm about 25% irrigated. And so on top right. of all this problem, the the, uh, the government kind of had a little bit of a boo boo, if you want to call it that, and they, they took a small leak and tried to fix it and it turned it into a giant leak. And so we haven't been able to w- use water. We were late, three weeks late getting water on our irrigation crops, and now we're only allowed about 25% of our allocation and only allowed to run so many pivots. and. So for a lot of ranchers and a lot of feedlots, the feed situation is going to be very dire this winter because of of the combination of of the two.
0: You know, I
4: obviously followed along
0: as the Alberta election went on. We talked a lot about energy, right, talked a lot about oil and gas. But farming is still a huge part of Alberta's economy, a really important part, Uh, not just for what it brings economically, but what it does for the province as well for folks like you and your family.
4: Yeah, you know what? You make a very good point, and I appreciate you bringing it up. Air, agriculture does get kind of forgotten and ignored. It doesn't seem to be a, you know, a sexy topic for lack of a better term. And 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 it's funny because agriculture is one of the few con, a uh, few industries in the world that creates uh, money from nothing. We we actually inject new money into the system because we grow crops from nothing. We're not just taking a service right and, and rearranging it and upselling it, and so. It's a huge component to our economy that people don't understand because, you know, we're creating money from nothing. And and uh, it's, yeah, and farmers, and you can talk to any farmer, they'll laugh. We, we spend money. We know how to spend money when we get it. and So we're always trying to upgrade our equipment or upgrade this. And, and so you can take a city like Lethbridge, when, the, when there's droughts, you can see a huge impact on the economy. Just huge.
0: Uh, I was reading an interesting story that, uh, that you were interviewed for on Global, and you talked a bit about modern farming techniques having really prevented something far more dire where you are. We could be witnessing something that we haven't seen since the Dust Bowl days if it weren't for the fact that things have advanced so much. How does that work?
4: No, thank you. for. I appreciate the opportunity to explain that because it is important. Um, no, not, probably 30 years ago, not even that long ago, 30 years ago, if we were experiencing the last five years, Southern Alberta and then even part of Central Alberta would definitely be I mean we're not you guys not as windy up there or, or but uh but in uh southern Alberta we get a lot of wind and right. we would absolutely be in a dust bowl where where you would see the cities would be covered in, in dust and and, and, and I'm talking about environmental devastation because these topsoils take, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years to to to, to, to create that two, three inches of topsoil. And and the way we farm today, we're allowed, we can go in and spray weeds um, in the, and get the, the ground ready to go, and we seed directly into last year's crops. You get stubble that's still sitting in the ground, that's holding the ground down, holds the moisture in place, and we seed directly into that. And so we can grow far more crops, far more tons of bushels, whatever you want to call it, for with far, far less moisture. In fact, maybe even half the moisture even 30 years ago and so if it wasn't for the advent of, of modern farming with, with, with crop protection products, um, you'd have to till that ground to get the weeds to, to die. You basically, you know, like you're weeding your garden, you have to weed the fields. And you turn that soil, which is, releases carbon into the atmosphere, which destroys the organisms in the ground, which is all around bad. And then you have nothing that holds the ground down. And when you seed a crop in and you get a season like this year where you get no rain and the crop won't even come up because it's sitting in dry dirt, and there you get a wind and there goes your land. And um, and in one day, you can lose hundreds of years uh, of buildup. And so, yes, it, it's a huge, I mean, it's, it's not even the same thing. It's not even recognizable what we do today to even 30, 40 years ago. And 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 good, obviously, because it's needed.
0: But right now, as you look ahead to this year, you've already talked about the financial yep. impact this will have. But I mean, other than praying for rain, other than rain, uh, is the, is there any answer? It look, feels like this is going to be a really tough year, and you already know that.
4: No, yeah, it's exactly right. So the the only options we have is is your farm needs to be sustainable. We need, like I said, we're a hundred years old. Um, my grandchildren, my grandchildren will be farming our land. And uh, so we need to, to make sure that it's there for them. So we always leave our land a little bit better than we've left the year before. And so that means you have to do everything right, which means you have to, you just can't cut corners and stop spending money on this crop because, you know, if you let the grasshoppers go, they will eat the crop right down to the ground and leave it black and, and you will have your land blowing. And mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, we have to take care of that. We have to make sure that you don't just the weeds are taken care of, and yeah, you just live to uh, to try another year. I guess that's that's farming, and, and we do have insurance. And for myself, I, I also bought private insurance on top of government insurance. And and so you know it's it's but yeah, you, we we are eroding our averages. When you buy crop insurance, you're on 15 year averages, and every year you have a bad crop, your average just goes down down, and it means next year your coverage is that much less, and um, and that much more expensive, less coverage and cost more money. So, yeah, your farm just gets a little less sustainable, for the lack of a better term. Every year you have these droughts.
0: And, and how does that mean, this a question, how does it impact, the? how do you think the rest of us may see the impact of this this year? Because needless to say, that's what yeah. most people out, out uh, yeah. listening out there probably live somewhere closer to a city uh, and are wondering, well, what does this mean? If uh, What does this mean for my, for, you know, buying bread and so forth? What might happen on that front?
4: So that, that's that's a tough one. So it very it varies dramatically. So if you're talking right. about, let's talk about wheat and pasta, that's derm and spring wheat and things like that. And so that's that's grown in every country in the world. It's harvested 10 months out of the year. And so it takes multiple countries of, of, of large droughts, not just areas, but whole countries and even multiple countries to really affect that. You're seeing that now the market has t- kind of taken off the last three or four days because there's a huge drought coming in, in the Midwest in, in the US. And mm-hmm. so that that will really affect prices. But if you talk about things like canola and mustard and pulses like your lentils and peas and things like that, Canada is, you know, upwards of 80 percent of the entire world's market is grown in Western Canada. And so if you have a drought there, then you can see a dramatic effect on prices. And what you're gonna see this year though is eighty percent of Canadian cattle is is in southern Alberta by Lethbridge. And, mm-hmm. and most of those feedlots are, are fed off of the Luther's Northern Irrigation District, like I mentioned earlier, that, that's having all those troubles. And so the feed situation for them is dire. They, it's, you, you silage. So if you don't know what that means is you have the crop that grows really tall, and you instead of combining it, you chop it up when it's still green, and it gets chopped up like a salad, lack <laughs> okay. of a better term. And then you, you store that, and then you feed that to the cows. That's not replaceable. And with the water shortages, they're not getting that silage. And so you're already seeing a downturn. You're talking about that earlier about less and less people in the cattle in the cattle game from these droughts. Um, the feedlots now are going to see you know exponential costs, and, and you're going to see sky high meat prices going even higher, uh, potentially. So, yeah, it's it's not all you know it's not all dire per se, but yeah, it's not great either. It's been a tough spring. Yeah, uh, Steve Vandervock. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to discuss this. I really appreciate it.
0: What do you have planned for this weekend? Perhaps you have a long list of chores. That's what I tend to do, that you'll want to get done before heading back to work on Monday to complete another long list of tasks. It feels like we're always doing something that's you know even when you're young you're taught you know don't sit around and do nothing there's always something to be done idleness idleness is the devil's work right is that not the term i might have gotten that wrong but you get the you get the point but how about this for a novel idea this weekend because it might be good for your brain and your body how about taking some time to do absolutely nothing let's not watch a movie or doom scroll twitter or play cards it's do nothing absolutely nothing it is a chance to let yourself disconnect from all the little things that you think should get done but as it turns out it's harder than it looks it's harder than it sounds many struggle including myself to not succumb to some kind of distraction left alone with your thoughts you tend to turn to things that trouble you or things that that you've been trying to put off it's sort of being left alone with your thoughts can oftentimes be no fun at all right so when you start to do it you tend to retreat pretty fast and bury yourself in some other sort of task or pastime because wow, why not, right? Why not do something kind of meaningless? You're not left alone with your thoughts for too, too long. But we can get some help on how to do nothing at all. Uh, Four years ago, former journalist, writer, and meditation teacher, Jeff Warren, started something called the Do Nothing Project on YouTube, an experiment in doing not much in a group. Every Sunday evening, Jeff appears on camera and leads participants from all around the world through a half hour of absolute nothingness. Here, have a listen.
6: My name is Jeff. I will be your host in this episode of the Do Nothing Project. (laughs) And welcome back, everyone, who's a regular. What's that? Bonnie, first time watching. First time watching. Well, the line is good to keep the expectations very low. The single most dramatically uninteresting place on the internet.
0: That's how he describes it. The single most dramatically uninteresting place on the internet. But every Sunday evening, lots of people tune in to find out how to do nothing. Because, again, uh, getting yourself in the right frame of mind to do nothing at all is more challenging than it sounds. We wanted to find out more. How do you do it? So maybe this weekend, I'll give it a shot. Jeff Warren uh, joins us now. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Oh, good to be here. Uh, The dude, I mean, doing nothing. I I was fascinated by this because (laughs) everyone thinks it must be the easiest thing to do. And quite clearly, doing nothing is a real challenge for most people.
6: Yeah. Well, actually, you know, doing nothing has a kind of um, a history in the meditation world. And it's considered in in the meditation world to be a more advanced technique. Because the problem is when you sit around and try to do nothing, then what immediately hits you are all the some things in your brain that you think you need to do. Right. All your mind's hilarious convictions of what's urgent and what's important—some which may genuinely be urgent, most of which aren't actually that urgent. So, so sitting inside, you're, a lot of times doing nothing, you're just sitting inside this like hurricane, gale force things I should be doing. But that does then. So that so meditation kind of has always had different ways of addressing that. You know, traditionally, I mean. By the way, the Do Nothing Project is not just about meditation, but it's just a useful framework to look at it. Like. So because it's so hard to sometimes sit and do nothing, there are different strategies that meditation has had around dealing with that. One is you just pay attention to a small something for a little while, like your breath or sounds and until things kind of cool out and then you can shift into a more do nothing mode. Or you just find the right kind of top level framing of like, hey, doesn't that be perfect? You can just let all that stuff be there and you kind of begin to get a feel for how to do it and then it can become quite um, pleasurable.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It had me thinking that, you know, from a very young age, we're encouraged to never do nothing, right? We're told you're lying around doing nothing, go do something. So from a very young age, we're programmed to be doing things. And we feel like idleness is somehow a bad thing. And it's hard to shake that.
6: Yeah, I know you're saying something very true about the culture. And that's actually something that different uh, sociologists and anthropologists have pointed out about uh, living in the West in particular, is that it's probably true everywhere in the world to a certain degree, but here definitely this sort of Puritan sense of got to work, the sense of urgency, need to do something. And then the kind of contemporary, you know, capitalist world has that ratcheted up to a high degree of anxiety. And as a result, you know, as a result, you there's this sort of disquieting feeling all the time that somehow just sitting here existing is not good enough, that you got to be out there proving yourself, you know, securing yourself, making things happen. And And, you know, there's a reason that we're in the kind of hardcore mental health crisis as a culture, like that, I think, builds into a lot of cumulative anxiety and stress, a lot of which isn't needed. So to be able to, so it's not like you're saying you should just sit around and do nothing because there are lots of problems in the world that need solutions. It's more like it may be that one of the best ways to address those challenges is to also have a setting where you can just relax and sit back and let everything settle. And then you can be actually that much more effective when you do get back into doing something. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: What? How did you come to this? I mean, I, I know that you had a career in, in journalism, obviously, so you're used to the whole notions of deadlines and all the all the anxiety that that brings, the kind of treadmill of that life. And, and, you, and you decided to get off the treadmill, which is uh, which is interesting. And then the Do Nothing Project came along, which which is a which is a great idea. I mean, it's, it's 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 very popular.
6: Yeah, well, it was um, it was because I was so um, I was a busy-brained, uh, hyperactive ADHD. <laughs> I, I literally am ADHD. I have that diagnosis. Um, I was a journalist with all that, and I was well, I was pretty unhappy because I couldn't. I was just always in a frenetic sense of like trying to do the next thing. I didn't know how to unplug. And so I got I used that frenetic energy at first just to get interested in how the mind works. And so I wrote a book about consciousness ages ago called The Head Trip. I don't think anyone ever read it. <laughs> Maybe my mom did. Even she was like, it's a bit long. <laughs> okay, fine. It was a bit it was like exactly the symptom of what I was trying to describe what I'm describing, actually, of like overdoing it. Right. Um, but through through the course of that, I I started reading and learning more about meditation and I started doing it and that really it really helped me out. You know, it was really one of those things where you could see that this was the medicine that the over caffeinated mind needed. And so, over the years of doing that of teaching meditation, I wrote a book, "Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics," that's kind of out there with a the, with a guy who's a funnier writer than me. Uh, but over the years of doing that, I I wanted to find a a way. I also I just needed a community of people to do nothing with. Because I'm still a, a, you know, a kind of recovering doing something person, and I am very still busy, and I'm not like I'm kind of a hypocrite about all this. Like, of course,
0: aren't we all? all? Yeah, yeah. I need to
6: unplug. So I just started that thing like about five years ago, and uh, it can really, it can be any, it can be a meditation, it could just be sitting and chilling, and it's been (laughs) great. People enjoy it, and I enjoy it, and uh, but I wanted a really low hanging fruit version of uh, of the practice of meditation, whatever, to be out there. So it's all about. Don't get in your head about trying to do anything with this time. Just literally do nothing, and so it's kind of
0: exploring that from different perspectives. Yeah, you have people from all over the world tuning in to your YouTube. Uh, your yeah, it's, it's it's Sunday evenings and Wednesday afternoons. Is that right? Is it twice a week or is it just the Sunday nights?
6: Oh, it used to be twice a week. No, now now it's just Sunday evenings right. at eight p.m. Eastern time. But uh, and I keep thinking I should make it earlier in the day because I have a lot of Europeans that listen. It goes, it gets archived on YouTube, and then right. Uh, but there's really nothing that happens. <laughs> like, I was going to say. Yeah, I,
0: it's not a cliffhanger, yeah. right? Like you can you can tune in no. whenever you want. It, it's it's you evergreen. You can tune in whenever
6: you want. You can just do it later. And like, I like to tell people, good to keep the expectations low. I mean, it's like terrible production values. It's probably the most boring thing on all of YouTube. I mean, I'm, I feel sorry for people who accidentally click on it and are just like, get me away from here now.
0: <laughs> but it serves yeah. its perfect. That's the whole point though. The whole point is yes. to put you in that frame of mind that you're not supposed to be stressed. If you did it, you know, if you had sort of, Four second edits, people would you would, people would be running off and sorting their sorting their closets within 30 seconds, right? Exactly.
6: I mean, the the whole point is that there is value in learning to be in this more, I guess, basic pared-down way of being. And it's and you learn a lot from seeing how hard it is to do that. How much you feel like you need to compulsively fill the space with channel surfing or watching this thing or checking your phone and like basically the message you're giving to your nervous system all the time is things are not all right things are not all right things are not all right i need to update change distract and so this the idea of this space is just to like you know it's it's just to relax and let's not be pretentious about it you can just sit around and do nothing but there is a kind of learning that happens around me you start to see wow i there's in a lot of ways i'm really not all right in my life you know and that this is a, a maybe a place where i can practice just like not making a big deal of anything. And as the, as the thoughts do start to sort of relax and settle a bit, you realize that there were fewer problems than you, than you imagined. You know, the, the mind does come up with lots of problems and,
0: Jeff Warren is founder of the Consciousness Explorers Club in Toronto, the Do Nothing Project you may have seen on YouTube. It is exactly what it sounds like it is. It is a way of encouraging people and helping people to do absolutely nothing. And I think sometimes do nothing um, means different things to different people, Jeff. And in this, in this case, it's not binge-watching an entire series on Netflix or or you know playing solitaire on your phone for seven hours. It's really lying down and doing – or not lying down, but any way you want. But it's really not doing anything. It's letting your brain – your mind just kind of relaxed without all that stimulation.
6: Yeah, exactly. I think it's not, I I think some of those things are probably not terrible for you. You know, you need a break from the stresses of your life and to a certain degree sitting down and watching movies. And that can be really helpful of reading a book. Like I still really, I do a lot of that myself. I need to, but the idea behind this space is to do even less (laughs) is to uh, just sit there and stare blankly out the window or to close your eyes and, and make it more of a meditation, or to lay down, and and just to see if you can kind of, I guess, you know, let the nervous system come to ground, instead of the constant like, ding, 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 input, 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 like the inbox of the nervous system, you know, that's kind of always a little bit uh, agitated, a little bit restless, a little bit feeling like it's got to be on edge in this responsive mode, can you actually let it start to kind of come to ground, and you know, I guess what's interesting there is that at first, it's just kind of about this rest. It's just rest. Just resting and relaxing a bit is nothing more than that. But over time, there's a reason why this is considered a very powerful meditation practice. And it's like, cultivated for multiple hours a day in different traditions. Like, over time, you, what happens is you start to see ever more subtle ways in which you thought you had to do something that you start to let go of. And so it's like layers let go. And some of the deepest layers are layers of these profound layers of like who I am, like of, of ego control, of, I, of ways in which you identify yourself. So at the deep end of the do nothing spectrum, there are actually serious meditators and contemplatives, of which I am not, who speak of really a different way of relating to reality. I'm not sure that happens at the do nothing project, but we can say it's, it's, we're directionally inclining ourselves in that way.
0: Yeah, the mountaintop. Uh, so to speak. I've always felt that modern life is a bit like jumping into a cold lake. And 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 the sensation you have is that sensation of hitting cold water again and again and again and again and again. That's beautiful. And if you, if you realize that after a few minutes, the water warms up and you start to relax, I've always felt that it was a bit like that. That's kind of the sensation you have.
6: <laughs> yeah. The endless, basically, shock. It's like a series of paddles to the chest, this modern living.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, up, well, precisely. Wake up. Wake up. Yeah. Wake up. Yeah. Like, You're missing something. You're I'm missing gonna... something. You're missing something. You know, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, it's been successful. I mean, you have a lot of people who tuned in. Obviously, people, uh, the reaction to it, uh, it it's, it's been good, I presume.
6: Well, you know, it's just it happens to be part of a zeitgeist right now. Or, well, first of all, nothing I'm saying is remotely new, Mm -hmm. which is obvious. Everyone, people have been saying it with far more ability and articulation many, many times over the years, over the centuries. And but right now there happens to be a kind of movement, I guess you could say, or because there's so much um, mental health, so many mental health challenges, because there's so many kind of challenges with, you know, being online and social media and so many people are talking about that it's out in the culture talking about the do nothing thing. So there's that Nixon thing. Uh, I forget it's N I K K O N or whatever it yeah. is. Some Dutch, some the Dutch, Dutch idea. art of doing
0: nothing. Yeah. 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 Yeah,
6: There's a book, the uh, great book actually called how to do nothing by uh, Jenny O'Dell, which is more kind of an artsy take on it. It's more political about taking back your own attention in the attention economy. So there is, there is something about the zeitgeist that I just happened to by fluke sort of tap into and, Um, But, you know, it's so it's been around for like five years. And sometimes there's lots of people listening to it. And occasionally one of the broadcasts will suddenly just get a zillion views. But I don't advertise it. And other times it just gets people realize how utterly boring it is. And then fewer people go for a while and then it comes up again. And just it has its vagaries.
0: Yeah. Well, if you work too hard at it, it would defeat the whole purpose, wouldn't it? Yeah, Yeah. that's true. and just for you, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the interesting, probably the reason you hit this moment was that you were going through the same experiences that a lot of people were going through, and therefore, when you went looking for a, a way to to deal with it, um, other people are going through the same thing. You you, you happen to share it, right? Which is, uh, it, has it helped? As have you have you found ways to kind of learn to do nothing after after the, all this time?
6: Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, I mean, I'm glad it, it works. It, yeah it helps on the su- and on the sunday night even just for me to even though i'll be lately sometimes guiding a practice or whatever that just helps me then because i got two young kids and my life is insane but overall the practice of learning to kind of unhook from the kind of spinning disaster scenario tsunami of my mind has been that's you know it's like completely changed my mental health in a lot of ways and uh, i think it's it's useful for everyone to kind of try to figure out a way if not to to do nothing at least to find some practice of uh, where you're not just, you know, hitting your devices and only in work mode or only in crisis mode where you can kind of unplug and it. You know, it's the thing is a lot of people already do have ways. Like if you think about anyone just sits down and thinks about it, you probably already have your little strategies and practices of taking the dog for a walk or whatever that help with that. So this is just about making that a bit more explicit.
0: And Sunday nights, right? That's when if anyone in listeners are interested, they can tune in. Uh, it's under the Do Nothing Project. It's easy to find on YouTube. And it's Sunday evenings, 8 p.m. Eastern.
6: Yeah. And everyone's welcome to come. And when you do, you'll realize immediately how completely boring it is. And we'll be happy to have you in the community.
0: In a good way. Jeff, thank you so much. Oh,
6: Ben, great to hang out with you.
1: Roz,
2: who's our next caller?
1: We have Martin on line one. He's having a problem with his son.
2: Hello, Martin. This is
6: Dr. Fraser Crane. I'm listening.
2: I'm a first-time caller.
6: (laughs) Welcome to the show. How can I help you?
2: I just moved in with my son, and uh, it ain't working a lot of tension between us
6: i can imagine why do you think that's
0: so
2: i guess i didn't see he had a whole new life plan for himself and i kind of got in the way
0: well these things are a two-way street
6: perhaps your son wasn't sensitive enough to see how your life was changing
2: you got that right i've been telling them of ever since i got there
6: <laughs> i'm sure he appreciated your candor
2: uh, maybe sometimes I ought to just learn how to keep my trap shut. That's good advice for us all.
0: <laughs> there you go. Perhaps one of the sitcom history, one of the more, one of the shows that really explored the father-son relationship the most was Frasier, right? With Frasier and Niles and Martin Crane, dad, and his chair and all that stuff. Um, and Father's Day is this weekend, of course, and, uh, you know, that, that show really touched on. On father son relationships, I mentioned a while back that I'd spent uh, the weekend with my dad. He came to visit from Montreal. I landed in Vancouver. I'm of course in Victoria, so I went to Vancouver to visit him, and we hung out, and it was great. Guy, because one of the things that's interesting about living far from your parents is that when you do see them, you tend to see them more. You see them for longer periods of time than if you live in the same city where you see them more often. But you tend to sort of stop over for dinner, or maybe you get together briefly. So you actually get to really spend some good quality time together, and it was great. It was, it was, you know, I hadn't seen. Seen much of him uh, over the pandemic, just one trip to Montreal last summer. And, you know, we're sort of used to getting together more often than that. And I've lived abroad for a long time. I've lived in quite a way far away in Victoria. He's in Montreal, as I mentioned, uh, for quite a while. So we don't get together as much as we really should, right? Uh, but ahead of Father's Day, I thought, well, isn't that great? I just spent a lot of time with my dad. But I was thinking more about sort of looking around online and sort of reading about sort of dynamics of father-son relationships. And as I mentioned, it wasn't to discount, uh, you know, gender roles or different parental relationships. They're all equally important. But the father-son relationship is always an interesting one because certainly growing up, you know, um, my dad's dad, my grandfather, they had a very sort of traditional relationship. It was quite of a, you know, my my grandfather on my dad's side was not, was not a particularly expressive human being. Um, so, you know, didn't show a lot of emotion with his kids. My dad always vowed that that would be a little bit different, and it has been. Uh, but I thought about looking at it broadly, because I think we can all use a little advice on these things, and it sort of fit in with what had just happened in my life, was that visit from my dad a few weeks ago. So I thought Yona Bud, who's a therapist and performance coach, he's host of At Your Best, which you can hear across the Chorus Radio Network on Saturday evenings, would be a great person to talk about this, a father himself, of course. Uh, and Yona joins us now. Yona, thank you so much for your time tonight. Great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Father's Day, you know, I was, I was uh, explaining that I just had a, a trip away with my dad. We spent The funny thing about living in a, in a different city or living far away from a father's, you actually spend more time with them. Because when you see them, you see them for days on end as opposed for just, you know, just a dinner and so on. But here we are, Father's Day, and it feels like the whole idea, the whole public's uh, perception about the idea of the relationship between fathers and sons has shifted. It's, um, it's
2: not what it was when I was growing up. In, in, yeah, in what way? I mean, you know, certainly, um, I think uh, our relationship with our fathers, certainly from my generation, is maybe more um, hands off today than uh, most people are in, in the next generation, and certainly generation that it's coming. But I think the relationship with your dad depends on how much you respect one another. And uh, you know, if you respect your dad, you probably want to hang out. If he respects you, probably the same. Otherwise, it's usually a relationship of tolerance. Absolutely. I mean, my dad was sort of in my, the, my
0: dad had a dad who was very standoffish. So he always uh, vowed not to be that way. So we have a pretty buddy like relationship, which has its, you know, obviously has its ups and downs uh, over time, but has always been pretty solid. Uh, it's an important, I mean, given all the work that you do with, with people in different stages of basically helping people out with, with how to deal with life in general, the relationship between father and son is an important
2: one, though, it can have a really long lasting relationship kind of goes without saying. Yeah, I doubt uh, I spent a decade working in the prison system and it was amazing how many guys that I dealt with that, you know, were in their late thirties, early forties that had 10 and 12 year old kids that they hadn't seen since their, their, the baby mother was pregnant. And, and here they are, these kids have reached out after, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of not having men in their life. And then when they do get out and, and do get a chance to connect, the relationship is like, it's, it's, it's almost unbreakable if it's a healthy relationship to begin with. The, the problem is sometimes that, you know, fathers don't recognize the amount of impact they have on their children so sort of being in and out of their lives can have a real detrimental effect
0: yeah i mean I mean, not to put too fine a point on other you know not to exclude other parental relationships which are very important and gender roles and so on uh but yeah, I mean, I was, I was reading something earlier just about how profoundly impactful the relationship with one's father can be for, for, for boys in, in particular, because they're role models. And if they're not around or if the relationship is strained or if there's a power struggle between them in terms of discipline and, you know, points of view, it can get pretty strained pretty, pretty fast. And those relationships, saying sorry in those relationships can be a tough one too.
2: Yeah, it's hard sometimes because, you know, I know as a father myself, I have three beautiful boys and a couple of grandchildren. And uh, I can tell you sometimes I have seen over the years – uh, I've seen myself in them in ways that I wasn't at my best, and parts of my personality I didn't like, and I'd go out of my way to explain to them, "Hey, that's not a part of me you you really want to model." But I go out of my way to you know to tell people all the time, you know, that your children, especially sons and fathers, and you're right, there's a special connection. Uh, also, daughters and fathers, and and, and likewise with mothers, uh, but different. Uh, but, but with a son and a father, you know, it, it's a, a quote unquote mini me, right? Yeah. Um, you know, how many of my buddies over the years have said, "You know, look at my buddy Josh or my." My my son Leon, or you know, my, you know, he's a mini me. Look at him. Yeah. Chip off the old block, right? Yeah, of course. Exactly, and and sometimes that block isn't. uh, You don't want to take all the chips off, right? Some of those chips need to stay there. Yeah. Uh, is more like it. Yeah, exactly. But but it puts a lot of pressure, as I'm sure you know, right? It puts a lot of pressure on a father if if they if they care.
0: And and I guess that's what I was uh, watching sort of the way that this conversation has evolved over the years. I find like because I was looking around before speaking with you, I was looking around just to see all the different literature that's out there. And man, there's a lot of literature these days about how to be a more empathetic, emotional, uh, emotionally connected father that stuff we just would never have seen, you know, back in the 70s or the early 80s.
2: Oh no, that would be touchy-feely stuff. My father would say that's that's foo-foo and it's for girls. Yeah, Uh, only girls are allowed to be emotional. But you know the the. The, the reality is, my friend, I think I think the best solution, if you're looking to be a great father and be at your best, I think the best solution is just be you be, you know, be be transparent, be vulnerable. Let your children know that you make mistakes and you struggle with this and you pump your chest out for that and and be vulnerable. I think that's the best way to have an open, honest relationship with your children.
0: Yeah, I I guess transparency. I mean, that's a word we use in politics usually, but there's something about transparency of emotion, you know, explain why you get upset about certain things, why you believe certain things, why your politics are a certain way, you know, lay it out there, kids can handle the truth.
2: Yeah, I think if you're honest about it, because, you know, I I don't know about your kids, but my kids knew what was going on inside me before I even told them. So it's kind of like, yeah, I know, dad, you know, when I realized I had anxiety disorder and a whole bunch of other mental health issues. And then they realized that they knew because they had friends at school that had the same kinds of things. You know, by the time I told them, it was like, yeah, we know. So it's like, you know, your children, even little ones, they pick up on stuff. So thinking that you're fooling them, eh, not a great way to go.
0: Yeah, I, I much to my, my father's uh, chagrin and my mom's too. I don't have kids yet. so I, And it has nothing to do with th- with them. It has nothing to do with my relationship with them. Just work always got in the way. But, you know, one, one day, one day,
2: one well, day. I, I, would, I, I suggest starting with a puppy and uh, <laughs> see, see how that goes. Uh, and if you come to Toronto, I got a couple of grandchildren that I'm sure would love to hang out with you. They, Absolutely. They, they'll, they'll know you're a cool guy for sure. Yeah. As we looked at Father's Day is an interesting one because it always, I,
0: I mean, it, I was reading this article where this. This daughter said to her father, you know, why is it that Father's Day is so much littler than Mother's Day? (laughs) He was trying to struggle to explain it. Um, But it's an odd day because we should really take it and use it to celebrate relationships with our fathers, right? Instead, it's sort of like, here's the tie. Let's, you know, here's the tie. (laughs) Or I guess you don't give ties anymore. Uh, Not overshadowed, but it tends to be a minor holiday compared to Mother's Day.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the reality factor is that, you know, you know, in, listen, in all of my relationships and all of my, you know, upbringing, you know, combinations of, of, of family uh, in upbringing, um, you know, at the end of the day, my mother uh, did, you know, a lot more than my father did. I mean, yep. not because he didn't want to, it's because he was doing other stuff that you don't see. I think, you know, in, in today's day and age, I think having a an equal relationship with both parents for different reasons is very important. And mothers, you know, I think mothers have that kind of pedestal thing where fathers, don't may not want that recognition openly, but deep down inside, we absolutely do. And I'm all for starting a whole thing with you leading it so that Father's Day becomes bigger and, and it's a two day event so it takes over Mother's Day. You know, Father's Day always feels like a good time
0: to reach out. And maybe if you, you know, if your the relationship with your father is a bit strained, mine is it. But of course, I know people who, who have strained relationships with their parents. These kind of days, Mother's Day, Father's Day, do offer an opportunity to break the ice, right?
2: Yeah, I I think so. Um, a great, you know, it's a good a good thing to a good thing to raise, good point to raise. I I think so. Um, I, you know, I I I had a mother. She's no longer with us, but I had a mother who used to tell me, I I don't want gifts because you know I want I want to be recognized every day. So right, she was all, she was all about you know sure now you're here it's Mother's Day. But I think it's it's the recognition, the international recognition, or the recognition for fathers on Father's Day is an important thing, and maybe for some people that are estranged, it gives them a chance to kind of sit back and go, you know what. Haven't talked to him in a while. Maybe today's the day to do it. Happy Father's Day. So I think it opens the door that way, but you want to make sure it's not a one-hit wonder. You know, one thing I've noticed too, though, is that, you know, and this
0: doesn't apply in my situation, but I know other people who have had relationships with their parents that are a bit strained. Time runs out on you. Time runs out on you to sort of mend fences. And it always feels like, and sometimes bending fences between fathers and sons can be difficult, especially if you're sort of both stubborn. And, and all of a sudden you realize time starts to run out. You watch your parents get older. You know, they become more fragile. And
2: you realize that, you know, the time to bury the hatchet is, is, is earlier than later. Carrying that stuff around is, um, is, it can be, you know, cumbersome, right? Like, you know, I, the, the idea of carrying around the guilt or the resentment or the, the, the uncomfortable feelings, the ill feelings that you have for others, especially, you know, fathers, mothers, you know, siblings like that. Um, it's hard to carry it. And over time, it eats away at you more so than it does the people that you have those feelings about. So, you know, and if you do have children, going back to our point earlier, right. it's a great chance to model, you know, how you say you're sorry. You know, I my my kids have heard me say I'm sorry probably you know ten thousand times in their years to, in in the years that we've been together. Uh, they're older kids, obviously, yeah. but uh, you know, like, and that's probably a, a, a you know a, an exemplified number. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm very open about saying I'm sorry. So it's important that we're able to say, "Hey, Dad, you know what? Whatever happened, I don't even remember. It's not worth it. I love you, and I'm sorry if I said something to make you uncomfortable. And let's just get get on now and, and have some fun." and Let's start today. The relief is like, you know, losing weight if if weight is something you focused on trying to lose. Uh, but it's it takes so much weight off your shoulders and your and your back. Yeah, and, and for you, what what's been the best part about being a dad? You have
0: three boys, right? So Father's Day should be a huge, a huge celebration. But what, what has been what has been the best part about fatherhood for you?
2: Yeah, you'd think, right? You'd think yeah, that it was like think. they're smart. They get together and I get like one gift. <laughs> um, the best part of it is that uh they still want to hang out with me. My, when my eldest son got married uh, a year or a bit ago, and oh, I got invited. I, I got, thank you. And I got invited to his bachelor party in the Bahamas. And I got to tell you, that was the time of my life. And I've had some pretty great times over the years. Uh, to be in, invited to be part of it, to, to, uh, to be included like that just made me so proud. Uh, I learn from my kids every day, and I'm thankful for that.
0: You have an opportunity here, Yona, because it's only Friday, and therefore they have a few days to pick out a Father's Day gift still. What is it that you would like this year? What is it What is it that you would like? I know it's, the gifts aren't that important. The recognition and the love is what comes first, but you still have a chance to to float a potential gift out there if you want.
2: Probably a clothing item from a, a brand that I would never buy for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Yona, well said. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, happy Father's Day to your dad. Absolutely. And to you. Thank you, better.